podcast. Today I have a very special interview with uh, the Jewish Catholic uh, on Instagram, also known as Daniel by his real name. Um, I'm looking forward very much to this conversation. I have been following him for a number of years on social media, and I think he's got a very unique perspective on Catholicism and a very uh, unique story. In one sense, all conversion stories are unique in that God draws people to himself in various ways, and they're all special because, hey, you know, everybody becoming Catholic is a good thing. Anyone becoming Catholic is a good thing. However, uh, I feel like I'm, in a sense, maybe taking a, a step into the past, uh, getting a first-century experience here um, of perhaps what it was like for the first converts to Christianity, um, how they saw the fulfillment of their faith or the continuation and completion that we're going to get into. Um, but th- Daniel, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. I'm looking forward to it, like I said. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on the channel. It's a pleasure. And after you had reached out to me, I had no idea that you've actually been following for a while. So it's great to know. And if you have been one of the OGs, you'll know that <laughs> the channel itself went through a transformation as I came into Catholicism. And it's been a great journey. And I'm, I couldn't be more happy to be a member of the church. That's that's awesome to hear. You became a Catholic last Easter, is that or okay? Yeah, not not this one that just passed. So now I have a completed year. Okay, okay, that that's right. Because I think before when I initially started following you, you weren't Catholic yet. You were in RCAA in the process of becoming Catholic, and that was uh that was excited. I was that was exciting to see. What name did you did you take? What um, uh, yeah, so my name is. is Daniel. Um, okay. but when I tried to go for a name, I was trying to get Shaul, which is Paul, his Hebrew okay. name. Yeah. But then the, the priest like, mm, that sounds a little bit controversial. Let's find another one. So <laughs> then I suggested Apollos because Apollos, if you look at the book of Acts, <clears throat> he was an Alexandrian Jew. And mm-hmm. the thing about him that I really loved was the fact that him being a Jew, spoke with a lot of vigor about what he understood so far of the gospel. But then Paul actually meets him and sees that he's not perfected in the ways of the gospel. So then uh, he gets taught a little bit more, and then he's able to continue preaching until uh, he's able to be like the apostles, spreading the the gospel, spreading the, the word of the Lord. So I thought that it was really good to see that uh, I could relate to that in some way, in that like I mentioned before, I had this YouTube channel before I was teaching other things, but still regarding the faith. And I did it to the best of my ability, just not perfected because I didn't have Catholicism. But now I've learned about Catholicism. I'm in the faith. And just like him, I continue to speak about the ways of the Lord now with a little bit more understanding, being that I'm Catholic. So uh, relating to that, I suggested to the priest, okay, how about Apollos? And then at the end, he said, "How about Daniel Apollos? Because Daniel is okay. you know, old, old Hebrew, uh, also passionate for the Lord, and then Apollos, just like you said, you can relate to him." So I said, "Okay, great, Daniel Apollos." It is. I think in Japan is very common, and in the East Asia area to have two names for your baptismal name. So that's why Daniel Apollos. Okay, I I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I I think that's probably true. More more than not, I think in the in the West, it's usually just one name, 
and it's it's usually a, a very popular saint. So I, I yeah I, I didn't know you you took the the two there. That's um. What's yours, by the way? Your baptismal name. Uh, so I, I took um as my conf- as my confirmation saint. I took um Saint Ignatius of Loyola, ah. which you know at the time I was a teenager, I it wasn't really. I kind of had a a second conversion experience or a reversion. So I I just took the name partly because it was my home parish, and partly because Ignatius was a you know kind of this nightly nightly guy, right? He was a little bit of a little bit of a show off and and <laughs> you know, he loved worldly things and I was a teenager and I loved worldly things. But as time has gone on, I realized actually he was the perfect saint. I I have grown to have a, a very big devotion to Saint Ignatius of Loyola. He's uh the Ignatian exercises are incredible. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read through them, but they're um, not yet, not yet. They're they're very they're they're life changing, and the his exam and examination of conscience is, is really good. Um, Excellent. That's it, did um, did the priest explain why he thought it was a controversial name? Was it just the pronunciation, or is it... no, no, no? It wasn't even because it was Shaul, but because it yeah. was Paul. Oh, in, oh, okay, interesting. And he says that it, it's usually a name that you would see popes take on. Okay. Okay. Which I, I, I mean, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's a reality. Maybe he just didn't like that name. I don't know. Whatever. It is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at at the end of the day, what I did is I just I took it because I a lot of people have said to me that a lot of times what happens is your saint chooses you. Yes. So so I'm like, okay, so maybe perhaps this is the case in my scenario right now. And it sounds like it's a case with you as well. Now that you're saying that you have like a, a devotion that developed later on much higher than what you had when you yes. chose it. So yes. it makes sense I, to me. I, I think throughout throughout my life and, and it sounds like throughout yours as well, you'll see that there's these saints that kind of come out of nowhere and one way or another you, you – you have you grow devotion to them, or they just keep popping up, and it does very much seem like they picked you, because you you don't know why the saint would have such an impact or why they would keep showing up in your life, but they they do, and it's a uh, it's it's a kind of a mysterious thing, right? But mm-hmm. but uh, it is a mystery. But hey. Uh, that's that's the part of the church that I love so much. That uh, there's so many things that we don't necessarily understand to the full extent, but part of that mystery is what makes it so awesome. I I completely agree. I when I had my reversion, I part part of what I needed to experience to kind of get into my faith was I I needed the reason the aspect of it. I needed to see that it was reasonable to believe, and I took a a philosophy class in high school and to me it seemed like faith and reason were at odds with each other and if you wanted to be a philosopher or if you wanted to be intellectual you had to reject your faith uh, and only, kind of only do philosophy but then as i started getting back into my faith i realized that actually you you could have them both but now i feel like <laughs> as i'm getting older uh i lean more into the mystery that that yes, there are reasons for why we believe. I I would not discourage anyone from finding those reasons out. However, I think there are some things that sometimes you just 
you have to kneel in front of our Lord in prayer and just say, I believe, I, I, you know, I believe in thee, I love thee, I hope in thee. And that's, that's kind of the rest. But um, if you would like to uh, we could talk a little bit about your, your journey to Catholicism uh, and what, what first piqued your interest, what, what um, sparked that conversation, uh, anything, um, if you could give me a little bit of that. Yeah, so I'll try to give you the short version because it is a bit of a long journey of how I ended up as a Catholic now and as a Catholic content creator. So my family, my ancestors are Jews coming in from the northern side of Africa and Spain. That That's the group of Jews known as the Sephardic Jews. They migrated okay. to Central America. That's where my parents are from. But at that time, my parents, during my parents' age, they didn't practice anything. Uh, they believed in God, as a lot of people did in that area, whether Jews or Christians, because there were Christians in that area as well. Uh, but they didn't really practice anything. It wasn't until my father, and again, coming in from Jewish heritage, but not practicing anything. So you might as well call them um, secular Jews. Uh, mm-hmm. They moved to the States. I'm born there. But before I was born, um, my dad became a Protestant Christian, specifically a Pentecostal Christian. And that happened through the fact that his employer at the time, the man that had given him his first uh, job that paid good money over there, was also a pastor. And he also helped my dad get an apartment, which happened to be right above the church where he attended. So the church is here, the apartment's here. And it's so crazy. We're so tied to that place. And this is in the Bronx, New York. Uh, We're so tied to that place that my mother, after me, she was pregnant with my brother. And she was about to give birth and she couldn't reach the hospital because as she was going down the stairs, she was in the church level. My brother was born right there in that church, uh, which was (laughs) pretty interesting. Uh, After that time, I'm going to fast forward all the way through my childhood. I was raised still within that same organization. And of course, I was raised as a Pentecostal Christian for a majority of the time until I got to my college years. So I think... I don't even remember when that was, but but it was much later on. Um, Still, I I went through different churches as I moved because I moved so many times throughout my life. But I began with that same organization, moved to Puerto Rico, still with the same organization, went to Maine and started going to a Baptist church and then to a Seventh-day Adventist church, Uh, went to some denominational, non-denominational churches. It was a lot of church hopping because my dad moved a lot. So we moved a lot with him. Um, Then when I was moving out to college, I hit a point where I started questioning everything as to why I was even um, living that faith that I was living. Was I just simply doing it because my parents did it? And I think part of what triggered that was that one time I was in a uh, worship service, if you will, in that same church. Uh, this time I was in New Jersey and in the middle of the service, I noticed that all of the music that you would hear, all the songs were all self-centered, right? Like your, your season is coming, your blessing is coming. And this was like mm-hmm. every message mm-hmm. too. Uh, and it, this was a Pentecostal church, which is considered to be one of the most conservative types, right? It's not like a right. mega church or anything where they're always promoting your wallet, um, but in here, in here, it seemed to be similar 
even if it wasn't necessarily always talking about money, but or your struggle, God is going to come help you, you this, this, but it was all self-centered. Even the music was like that. And I remember being in the back of the church, just thinking, when are we going to praise God for who he is, <laughs> right? right? Instead of like yeah. focusing so much. So that got me into really digging into the studies during this time. Uh, again, college years, as everybody knows, you're probably going to be really broke, which I was. Um, during that time, I was living in the same store where I worked. I lived in a back room in this small, wow. yeah, you know, we buy gold shops that you see everywhere in the States. Oh, yeah. Yes. So I worked in one of those and okay. I lived in the back room, um, which is terrible, right? It was so <laughs> bad that you could hear like the mice crawling up on the ceiling. Oh, gosh. I had no TV. I had no car, so I couldn't go out. Uh, all I had the ability to do was to read. Um, so during that time, what I did, I started asking the questions, why is it that I practice my faith? I started asking my dad about our family. I learned about our Jewish heritage more then because we never really spoke about it. Mm -hmm. um, my dad told me, you know, that the area where we lived in Central America, there, uh, there was a large Jewish population there. Uh, he used to hang out at the Jewish cemetery. I don't know why, but that's something that he did. <laughs> um, and then we spoke about our name. We spoke about the heritage. We spoke about our, the grandparents and ancestors. So I'm like, oh, that's really cool. But I didn't really think much of it. It was just random heritage. But as okay. I started talking, uh, uh, learning about the faith at the same time, it, it was like I was digging into a personal journey and also a faith journey, going backwards and see where everything comes from. And I started asking why I believe what I believe. Is God even real? Mm -hmm. So that really got me into first fi finding out if God is real. That naturally took me into the more philosophical realm because to explain something that you can't really explain with the senses, you have to dig into that route. Right. right. So I start, I start learning about God that way. Why is there something instead of nothing and all of these arguments? Later on, I see, okay, God is real. Then I start talking about or start researching about other faiths because there are obviously other faiths that have gods in them. So why this God? Why that God? Which God? Is it a pantheon of gods? Is it one? And it was logic that led me to understand that there could only be one God, because by necessity for there to be an almighty, all-powerful, there can only be one by necessity. So yeah. that helps me scrap all the other ones, plus there were no evidence for them. I started looking into archaeological evidence, historical evidence, and the only one that stood out to be real is the God that... Uh, Christians and the Jews and the Muslims believe, or at least that's how I saw it. Then I start comparing the faiths, starting the uh, with the holy books, like the Bible, the Torah. I start looking into the Quran, and I find out so many discrepancies in the Quran that I could see that the faith had so many faults. I start looking into the history of Muhammad, and I see that there were a lot of issues with him as well. So I could easily scrap down it as well. So I was basically left with Judaism and Christianity. Um, being of course that I was still a Christian, um, and understanding that Yeshua, Jesus is the Messiah. I wanted to find out what evidence there was for Jesus to be the Messiah. I find it and there was no way to deny it, but I did find something that sparked a big move in my life. This is where things start really pivoting. Mm -hmm. And it was that every time that I look into the scripture, I find something that went really against what I believe because as a Protestant Pentecostal, I believed in sola fide or faith alone. 
basically saying that faith is the only thing really needed in in the faith to be a Christian, right. to be a part of the relationship with God. But every time I looked into scripture, it was completely not what I saw because it wasn't just faith alone. The book of James chapter two literally says that we, we do not live by faith alone. And he right. also says faith without works is dead. Uh, so he was literally there. And Yeshua himself would say, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he said this in several occasions. You see it also in the book of first John. Right. And in, when I kept going through the history, I saw the same thing. I saw that God had a pattern, even the New Testament, that followed the same pattern that you saw in the Old Testament, which is, of course, you believe that this is God. Of course, you devote yourself to him. You have faith in him. But that faith means doing something about it. It means acting in a certain way. Mm -hmm. It's like a lot of times we can explain it as Catholics that um, love is a verb, right? It means right. showing your love. And the way that you show it is doing precisely what Jesus said. If you love me, keep my commandments. So that was the first thing. Sola fide was anti-biblical. Anti and because of that, I understood that we had to keep the commandments. So I started thinking, okay, so what commandments am I supposed to keep? Because the Protestants make up their own, the Baptists make up their own, the Seventh-day Adventists make up their own. So who's right? So I start looking into the heritage of the faith. I start looking into the Jewish roots of the faith. And that's when I discover about the mitzvot, the commandments that were handed down by Moses, mm -hmm. uh, such as the kashrut or keeping kosher, the Shabbat, Sabbath, the Moedim, which are the biblical feasts, and all of these different commandments that we were not keeping. And then I find this group called the Hebrew Roots Group and Messianic Jews. Very similar, but also very yeah. different. Yeah. Have you heard I, of I, Hebrew roots by any chance? I, I haven't. Um, I I was going to ask you a little bit about uh, Messianic Judaism. Uh, we can get to it later, but I, I was curious uh, about your thoughts about that because sometimes I think people take that as uh, some sort of maybe middle ground to meet the two, or it's uh, a blending. Or Messianic Judaism is actually the fulfillment of Judaism, not um, not Catholicism. Uh, but yeah, we can if you want to keep going, we can get into that. Uh, yeah, we'll bit, we'll but... definitely dig into that. I think that's a good topic to cover. Okay. And I think that's actually even more important than my own story. Uh, <laughs> but I'll I'll give you that abridged version even shorter sure. than I can. If, if this seems already long, imagine how long it actually is. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's no, it's totally fine. It, I it's it, your story is already very fascinating. Um, in a sense, I feel like you're uh, uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, right? He was hurt. And all he could do was read the lives of the saints of the Bible. And here you were, all you had was the Bible. And that started your, your conversion. Um, and I certainly relate to your um, intellectual journey. I, I, I felt the same way in college. I, I didn't explore like you did um, because I was afraid of my mother. Uh, I believe that my mother can see everything somehow. She knows everything. Mm. I, I don't. I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know how she knows everything, but That's she mom's. does. <laughs> and so I knew that if I went around and looked at other churches, somehow she would know. Right. Um, so I, I didn't do that, but I, I, I needed to answer these questions as well, uh, particularly this question of God, and oh, also yeah. why do I believe? Um, I, I had experience at mass one time. You know, we stand for the creed and say, "I believe in one God," and I just thought, "Do, do I?" I? Like, do, do I even believe in this? I don't even know. So wow. I, I can relate to that, but please go on. Yeah, so continuing on that, um, I I started looking into these groups, and I noticed that they stood out to me because of the fact that they were also 
seeing the the issue that I saw, which is that we have to keep the commandments, and they provided an answer, which was keeping the commandments of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, the Hebrew Roots group was a little bit weird to me, though, because the people were odd. I'm sorry for anybody out there who is part of the group, but they really seemed odd to me, mm -hmm. right? But the Messianic Jews uh, stood out to me even more because of the fact that they were Jewish. And of course, I, as I said, I, I started embracing my heritage, learning more about it. It even led me to even taking a DNA test to see if what my dad was telling me was accurate, like we were actually descendant from Jews. So we confirmed yeah. it. So I had like the DNA test. I had the name heritage, my ancestors, the place where they lived and all of these things, they were all tied together. Um, so there was no escaping the fact that that was a reality. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, well, if if I'm Jewish, these people are Jewish too. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I do too. They're keeping the commandments and I, I know I should. Okay, let me let me start going into this. So I start right there in New Jersey learning about this, but there were no other people that believed the same thing I did. As a matter of fact, because of me uh, starting to believe these things, I started keeping kosher immediately. I started wearing these things called tzitziot, which are the tasseled garments that Jews would wear, yeah. which also happens to be that the garment that the woman with the issue of blood in the Gospels that she hold, oh, holds on to Jesus, yeah. that's the okay. garment that she's holding on to. It's called tzitzit. Um, So... At that moment, because there was a lot of things happening during that time in my life, uh, I ended up moving to Texas, right? Uh, because of the fact that, again, <laughs> everything faith-related is always an issue in my life, in, <laughs> in a sense. Because the church that I belong to, I also happen to be uh, part of the ministry for the youth and part of the worship ministry. And they kicked me out of everything because of the questions that I was asking. Um, they felt that... I was spreading bad things by asking the questions of, you know, why don't we keep the commandments? What commandments are we supposed to keep? Who's the authority? All of these things. They didn't like these mm. questions that I was asking. So they stripped me out of all of that. And they said that I couldn't talk about it with any other youth. Uh, but of course, I keep pursuing it because this is what I saw in scripture. Sure. But um, because they were basically treating me like a leper, I said, okay, then I'm just going to go back to where my family is. And at this time, my family had moved to Texas. So I moved to Texas. I find a messianic congregation there. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it gave me the opportunity to embrace my Judaism in, or my Jewish heritage, rather. Also, it helped me to grow in my faith in, in Yeshua and Jesus by being able to see that he was a first century Jew, that he lived a certain lifestyle, and it helped me really connect that it made Jesus more real to me to see that he operated in a very specific period of time versus the Jesus that I had in my mind, which um, it's it's almost like a meme, really, uh, the way that I saw Jesus. He was so far off. He didn't seem tangible. Of course, he's God. So he he's, you know, God. <laughs> but seeing him, understanding that he lived in the first century as a Jew, that you know, there, there were feasts that he would keep. There was a way that he would eat. There was a way that he would dress. He would have to go to the temple. He was part of the society that made him so real to me. Uh, on top of that, the, the disciples became more real to me too, because I understand a lot of things. For example, when, when Paul says, I must make it to the feast when he's about to crash in a ship, I understood now what feast he was talking about and why he he needed to go to it. So all of these things that are happening uh, in my life, I started embracing it even more. 
uh, and embracing the faith as well. Now, during that time when I moved there, I'm also learning a lot about Judaism in general. I start learning about the rabbis. I start learning about the Mishnah, which is one of the, it's the compiled and written tradition of the Jews, what is known as the oral Torah. Okay. Uh, yeah. In written um, form, the Jews had to write it afterwards. Oh, sorry. Oh, right. Um, I, uh, when I was studying the Old Testament, I got into reading a little bit of the, the Targums. Is, is that right? Um, but those are translations. Yeah, the Targums it, are just it, translations of it. Right, right. That is, uh, that, that's different. They were very fascinating, though. And mm. these other kind of uh, oral or written traditions of Judaism in, in these early centuries are very fascinating stuff. But please Absolutely. There, there's a lot of writings like that that I started uh, learning about, like the different, the Peshitta, for example, the Targums, the, the Mishnah. So as I start digging into all of these things, another thing starts popping out in my mind because now that I could identify myself as a Messianic Jew, which I still am technically, even as a Catholic, I'm a Messianic Jew because all it means is that you're a Jew that believes that Jesus is the Messiah, right? So, but in reality, in its true context, what a Messianic Jew is, as somebody who practices Judaism in the light of Messiah, or at least this is how it's understood. Now, as I start embracing all of this, I, I visit a lot of different messianic congregations, different synagogues, just because I loved fellowship. But a, an issue that I noticed is that very similar to Protestantism, like I mentioned before, it was the issue of the commandments, right? Mm -hmm. Which commandments am I supposed to keep? So I go to one Messianic congregation and they said, kosher means only adhering to what you see in Leviticus 11, the animals that you abstain from, the animals that you eat. Then I go to another synagogue and they say, no, it means these things that the rabbis also said, which means, for example, that you can't mix meat and dairy. So in my mind, I'm thinking, wait a second, we have the commandments, but there's still arguments over which ones it is. And then I go to another place and they said that in Shabbat, in the Sabbath, you can't do anything. You can't drive, you can't work, you can't even cook. Yet in another one, they said, you just don't have to do your actual job, but you can drive. And, you... and I'm thinking, man, everybody here is just as confused as in Protestantism. Who is the, the authority that defines? Right. So naturally, I look into the rabbis and I start looking into the legal uh, the Jewish legal documents, such as the Shulchan Aruch. And the Mishneh Torah, which are basically the uh, the written commandments that you are supposed to keep according to the to the high court that existed and according to the tradition of the rabbis. So that's like the oral or sacred tradition, what we would call sacred tradition. Right. I start looking into all of these things, but even the rabbis can't decide. Even when you go to the Talmud, for example, which is the Talmud is like a really expansive commentary on the Mishnah, right? So okay. if you look, if you if you ever open up a Talmud, you're gonna see a section of text, and you're gonna see text around it, and a little bit more extra commentary around it. So that's the okay. midrash. So you have Mishnah, then you have the Talmud, and you have the midrash. It's all commentary on commentary. But as I'm going <laughs> through it, you see that the, even the rabbis argue a lot. And one of the things that you will notice is even what you see in um, in scripture, like the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. Right, these are the two competing Pharisaic homes uh, houses, mm -hmm. um, and again, I'm thinking, man, who is the authority? And the reason why there was no authority is because the temple didn't exist, which means that the high court, the Beit Din Hagadola, or what we know as the Sanhedrin, doesn't exist okay. anymore. 
right? Yeah, I was going to ask you, is the high court the Sanhedrin? Um, but uh, yeah, go on. Yeah, that's what it was called later on. But at f- first, uh, it was just called uh, Beit Din Hagedola, which means the house of judgment, the great house of judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it doesn't exist. So I'm thinking, man, I thought that I finally had it that I was understanding what to do. So I start digging more into the rabbis, of course. So that got me further away from traditional Messianic Judaism into actual Orthodox Judaism, because at least I felt that the Orthodox Jews had a structure, right? I moved to Japan and I start attending a Messianic congregation that I found and a a conservative Jewish synagogue. But my mind is still thinking, why is it so different? Why does every synagogue practice something different? So that really dug me into asking the next question about who is the authority? Because now I knew, number one, sola fide was false. Um, Sola scriptura had to be false too, because according to what we see in scripture, there's some things that are just not explained. So uh, I saw that the ancient Jews had not just the written Torah, but they had the oral Torah as well. So I got those things down. But then was the issue of the authority. Who defines what? Who can decree? And then when I look into the Old Testament, the answer was clear. If you go to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17, and if you go to the book of Second Chronicle, uh, you will find that in those passages uh, that you will see there, God specifically places a human authority that he says that you are not to turn to the left or to the right or whatever they say. So they had the authority to decree to judge, to rule, and to be able to judge between civil cases and cases regarding um, Torah, right? The faith. But then, of course, I noticed that we don't have the courts, so we have no way of identifying it. And then that gave me into another pivotal point in my life, which was, wait a second. Why am I looking into only this non-believing ancient followers of the faith? So then, of course, I said, okay, then let me look into the history of what the earliest Christians believed. So I start looking um, into the earliest Christians. Of course, I start with the New Testament first. I read through all of the Gospels. Of course, I read the Bible before, but I wanted to just go again from the beginning. So I start from the Gospels and I start reading all through the New Testament. As I'm doing so, uh, I notice against the same things that I noticed before, which was that we do not live by faith alone that uh, we have commandments that we have to keep and all of these things. But then when I move forward from that, I want to see what other Christians continue to practice. So I find writings such as the Didache, which mm-hmm. is attributed to the earliest believers. Some people believe it was the apostles. Some people think it was the students of the apostles. Regardless, most scholars believe it to be written while the temple still stood, right. which has to make it at least 60 A.D., Right. Or before 70. So as I'm looking into it, I'm seeing a mention in chapter 9 and chapter 14 about the, the Eucharist. And it bothered me because I'm like, the only people that I know that talk about this kind of stuff are Catholics. Right. So I said, oh, of course, maybe this is just, I, I'm misunderstanding it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I keep going and looking into other uh, early church fathers. And I p- specifically stick to the pre-Nicene fathers because I had been fed the lie that after Constantine, Christianity became paganized and all of this. Right, right, right. 
So I'm like, okay, I'm going to stick to the ones before Constantine. I want to see what, what's going to happen with these guys. So I look at St. Ignatius of Antioch. I start looking at Clement of Rome. I start looking at whatever is left over from Papias and his works, because I see that he was also mentioned in the New Testament. I start looking into um, St. Irenaeus. And mm -hmm. every time that I look at them, they keep mentioning the Eucharist. Like it was the most important part of everything. Every gathering had to do with this, the breaking of the bread and then partaking in the body and blood of Christ. And that's when I really freaked out and it got me into this whole thing where I wanted to debunk the church. Mm -hmm. So as I'm seeking to debunk the church, I, I <laughs> inevitably end up seeing that, man, this actually flows in perfectly. And of course, as I had been studying about uh, ancient Judaism and what happened, what happened to the court, uh, what's the authority? I saw then that the authority of that great court, Yeshua continued it with the apostles. That's why he breathed them then and gave them the authority, the binding authority to bind and loose, which is rabbinic terminology. Um, and I saw that, and I saw that he gave them the same rights, basically, that the Levitical priesthood would have. But then you read the book of Hebrews, and you see that they're now partaking of a new priesthood, the priest of, of Melchizedek, or Melchizedek. So I'm I'm reading all of these things, and it starts making sense. And Catholicism makes more and more sense as I'm going through it. I'm going through all of the theology. The papacy makes perfect sense when I look at the ancient Hebrew structure of how the kingdom right. used to run. I'm looking at everything, and it makes sense. And then I got to the hard point, which was Mary. This was the real struggle for me. And it wasn't necessarily because it didn't click. Um, at first, it didn't click at all. I didn't understand why Catholics prayed to Mary, why Catholics adored Mary, why Catholics kissed statues of Mary, why they were right. worshiping Mary. And I'm like, wait a mm -hmm. second. They're, they can't be. They can't be idol worshipers if they always talk against idol worship. So I started to actually learn about Catholicism from Catholic sources. <laughs> oh wait they're not worshiping mary oh wait they're asking mary for intercession just like jews ask the saints as well and they use the intercession of saints mm -hmm. wait a second it's the same thing they have priests like we had priests they have oral tradition or sacred tradition like we have sacred tradition they have a magisterium like we had the Beit Din Hagedolah. and all of these things let me to see oh my goodness it's it's the continuation. It may I couldn't believe it. Started making sense, and then to understand Mary, I start looking into typology, and that's when things mm -hmm. really made sense. When you compare the second book of Samuel, chapter six, and the first chapter of Luke, Luke, you can see that Saint Luke he was doing it on purpose, right? When he's mm -hmm. describing that Mary goes to the hills of Yehuda and David went to the hills of Yehuda or of Judah, you see that. As soon as he gets there, David leaps for joy um, before the Lord, and he dances. When Mary gets to Elizabeth, the baby within her womb leaps for joy mm -hmm. because at the voice of Mary. Then uh, Elizabeth says, how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And David says, how is it that the ark of the Lord should come to me? So all of the parallels were clearly on purpose, and there is more to it. But even though I got it in my head, it made perfect sense. She's the queen mother. She's the Theotokos. She is the mother of God. It didn't click in my heart. That was really the big struggle. 
And I said, God, I'm ready to accept everything that you're showing me here in the Catholic faith, but I'm it's not clicking in my heart. It makes sense to me here, but it doesn't make sense to me here. And if you really want me to accept Mary, how the Catholic Church accepts Mary, then you need to do something. Soon after, I get this random feeling that I should get a rosary. So I get one. Mm. I go to a Catholic church and I'm I'm attending the masses, but of course not participating, but just to see, see what's going on. Right. I get the rosary blessed and I start praying the rosary as a non-Catholic. The more I do it, the, for, the more I feel that my heart begins to melt. I feel that this hardness that I had towards Mary starts to disappear and it's replaced with this love for Mary. Like I'm seeing her as my wow. own mother. I'm starting to see that she's there when I'm praying. I can feel her when I'm praying the rosary. She's praying with me. She's taking me through the journey of the mysteries to see our Lord and helping me to love him more. And I'm seeing that she's the best way to get to know Christ in a deep way. And I couldn't believe it that it was happening like this. And of course, naturally, this led me to say, okay, God, you're proving to me that, that everything <laughs> that the Catholic Church is saying is true. What am I to do except to accept and become Catholic? So then I become Catholic a year ago. I start changing my channel little by little. As I'm learning, I'm posting questions in my videos. Like the authority, who can judge? What about the Torah? What commandments are we supposed to keep? I'm putting these things out as I'm learning them, but in the back of my mind, hoping that somebody's going to prove me wrong about Catholicism because I, I didn't, I didn't want it to be right. But right. as I keep journeying and posting the videos or posting those questions, I get to the point where I finally made the confession, guys, I'm going to become Catholic. <laughs> get hate from all it, sides. Before I used to get hate from uh, Orthodox Jews only because they, I believed in Jesus. I get hate from some Messianic Jews because I'm adhering to the oral, to oral Torah of the rabbis. I get hate from the Protestants because I'm not Protestant. But now that I became Catholic, I'm getting hate from everybody and their mother. It was crazy. <laughs> it was insane. And at first, it, it was uh, really tough, right, to feel so much hate. I got death threats so many times throughout my, my time oh, on YouTube. Wow. I, I didn't. Wow. Yeah. That was, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I did not think that would happen. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. A lot of hate messages, pe people speaking even about my wife. And it was so oh, ridiculous. It was so was... ridiculous. But of course, um, as time passed, I think I developed a thicker skin because I started to see the faith so real that I didn't even care about all the hate. Uh, so yeah. I eventually ended up changing my channel to the Jewish Catholic, my Instagram also to the Jewish Catholic. And because I had made the promise to God that I was going to go full force if he proved to me that Catholicism was true, that's what I do now. So that's why I, I make the Catholic content that I do. But because I'm I'm a Jew, right? I'm from Jewish descent, not practicing Judaism. I want to make that really clear. <laughs> sure. Just, <laughs> just like Paul, just like the apostles, that's all that means. I'm Catholic in faith. Um. That's why I now, even though I am Catholic, I'm still coming from Jewish heritage. So I want to bring those Jewish roots that help me to actually become Catholic. Because if I didn't have that, if I would have jumped from Protestantism, I would have never gotten to being Catholic. 
But because God took me through that journey to first understand that sola scriptura is false, sola fide is false, that there is a need for an authority, that led me into Catholicism to be able to embrace it truly. And that's what I do now. I share the the roots of the faith with people that are willing to hear. Well, thank thank you for that that uh, story. I I one day maybe I'll, I'll hear the whole thing because um, that was very that was very fascinating. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, if you want to be uh, on if you want to be on social media as a Catholic, you got to have thick skin. It seems like I oh for sure when I when we started posting stuff, I I was ready for all the positivity. And then I remember it's the internet. <laughs> Positivity. And, and the, yeah, I mean, of course, we, we get our support sure. and we get good comments. I'm sure you do as well. But yeah, not not all the time. And you sometimes just have to not look at the comments because it, <laughs> it'll, it'll tear you down. But then, it, you know, I think you made a great point. It's it's the the love of, of the faith and of the gospel and of, of Christ that allows you to keep posting, allows you to keep sharing. Because it's not about, well, do all the comments like me or not? It's I, I want to share the truth. I think that's a really great way to look at it, and something I'll, I'll have to remember as well. When the, you know, when I'm reading these comments, sometimes I, I think that's that. I think that's very beautiful. I want to hit on some points that you brought up. Uh, it seems like the Eucharist and Mary; those are those are always the stumbling blocks. Uh, th- those are two really big ones. Uh, I think for for anyone. Uh, converting, you know, this idea that the Eucharist is more more than a symbol, that it is actually the body and blood of Christ, uh, and Mary, do we do we worship her and, and things like that? I think I think you're right, though. Once you start looking into the early church and you look at the early church fathers, they're unanimous on it, right? And I think, you know, through my own um, Old Testament studies, when you look at the Old Testament, there's there's great Biblical foundation for the Eucharist, like one like hundred percent. Um, I think about uh, the the bread of the presence or the presence bread. I think it is, um, and the the different translations of that is it, what is it the the bread of the face. I think in Hebrew, um, in this idea that it was meant to be a a pattern of the heavenly banquet that the that Moses uh, was it he had on Sinai. Yeah, Moses and the elders. Right, Moses. Right. And how it was also you were they were to take the the bread of the presence and put it in the in the inner sanctum and that that the tent and the tabernacle were supposed to be God's meeting place on earth and we have that now in the church, you know, the the physical church building is meant to be the place that you can go and meet God in the tabernacle still in in the holy eucharist. Uh, Mary's also a very. That's I think the typology. I, I'm very interested in typology as well. I think I think if you if you go down that route and you start looking at the different uh, types for the Eucharist and the types for Mary and the types um, kind of of Christ and fulfillment, it's very fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that I really like, one of the things that I love about typology, is how solid it is. I think one of the things that I let let me compare and contrast between typology. And when people see something in the scriptures, right? For example, mm. when when a lot of people see scriptures where God says a blessing over no, on something unknown, right? God says a blessing. People take those quotes and apply it to their life. 
without taking into the context that God was speaking, for example, to the Israelites for a certain specific reason, but people think it sounds nice. So they just want to apply it to their own life. Right. right. So they see like that's a pattern that they could apply. Typology is not that. Typology is not taking random scriptures and making it fit to your life. Typology is a very real comparison of types and figures and of the shadows and the actual substance. When I was speaking before uh, about 2 Samuel chapter 6 and the first chapter of the book of Luke, the pattern is so undeniable that you can obviously tell that it's not just cherry picking and say, oh, it kind of fits. It's kind of like Mary is this. It's kind of like Luke is saying that. No, you look at them side by side, and it's a very clear pattern. The same thing that you see uh, in the book of John when um, John is describing the day, the first day, the second day, the third day, going through the days of creation. And when he gets to marrying, Yeshua calls her woman. At the same time in the pattern, you will see that that's where God creates woman, right? Eve. So comparing right. that Eve with the new Eve. So all of these things that are in typology are way more solid than what a lot of people would think, because a lot of people think that typology is simply seeing something obscure in the New Testament, seeing something obscure in the Old Testament and making the match. That's not typology. Typology is seeing a real thing that happened in the Old Testament scriptures and seeing something very real that happened in the New Testament and seeing that there is a solid pattern in which they purposely connect. So Mary, that was the best way for me to understand her through typology. That was a, that is a very good explanation and distinction because you're right. Typology is not a loose study of just this point A vaguely maps on to point B, or this is my interpretation of, of point A and point B. It's it's actually kind of a, a rigorous thing that has to map on closely and not through some like you said some some vague notions or, or, or such. I I uh, I was going through uh, on the podcast we were talking about uh, you know we're going through the lectionary. Uh, the second reading has been from Philippians, and so we're talking about how in Philippians two you have kind of the Christ poem where Christ you know empties himself becomes man, you know, you did not deem equality something to be grasped at. And there was a a type there, an anti-type, actually, of, of, of Adam, that Adam grasped to become like God, but Jesus didn't, he actually emptied himself for, for your sake, so he humbled himself, whereas Adam uh, attempted to exalt himself. And like I said, those have to be close to each other. You have to see some sort of connection. I, I think you're right that sometimes people just think Catholics kind of make it up as they go. Yeah. <laughs> like there's kind of like oh yeah yeah we like Mary so we're going to find justification to to say that she's the mother of God or something. Yeah. And that's what I used to think too about Catholicism. Like the rosary, I didn't why do why do Catholics do that? Why do Catholics pray to the saints? And all of these things to me it was literally that exactly what you just said. I thought that Catholics just made it up as they went. That's why in the beginning when I started learning about the the Eucharist, for example, I, I didn't want to accept that the church, the Catholic Church was truly the one that Christ established. That's why I didn't even want to look past Constantine, because I thought that he paganized everything. Right. I was afraid of so many things regarding Catholicism. 
because of what I misunderstood about it. And there's a quote, maybe you know the quote, and I, I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I, I don't remember it exactly. But it goes something to the effect of nobody hates or you will not find a single person that hates the Catholic Church, but you will find plenty of people who hate what they think the Catholic Church is. Yes, but, I think that's a Fulton Sheen quote, maybe. But yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, so that's the mentality that I was able to realize that I was having. I, mm-hmm. I didn't have a Catholicism once. I actually knew what Catholicism was, but I thought that it was just idol worship. I thought that, you know, the Catholic Church was the whore of Babylon, because that's literally what I was told so many times. Yeah, the, no, I've heard that the before. Antichrist, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. So all, all of those things uh, made me never want to look in, into Catholicism. So that's why in my journey, and again, I have to apologize because I really didn't want to make it that long. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I, I, not a problem. But I wanted to show that everything that God did was with a purpose. And I say that because maybe somebody out there is going through their own journey. Somebody maybe that's going to watch this or listen to this is not Catholic yet but they might be going through a journey and it's just trust God because in the end of it, he's going to take you through different things to take you where he wants to get you. If you let him. Yeah. So that's why my prayers, when it came to Mary, I said to God, if you want me to love her, like the Catholic church does, if you want me to embrace her, like the church does, you need to make it happen here in my heart because I, I can't make it. So, right. No, that's why I, I, I wanted you to to say as much as you, as, as you wanted to about your story because I believe that sometimes these conversion stories are are great witness to people who are on the fence, falling away, considering it, you know, whatever it is. I, so I want you to say as, as much as you're you're able to and as much as you're willing to to share because I, I hope it can be a witness as well. I mean, that's partly why you and I, I think are doing what we're doing is we're hoping to spread the gospel in our own 21st century way, and so. I yeah no I, I I pray I pray for the same thing yeah there there's a you've probably seen this in your comments as as well you know there's a lot of people that it, it's very frustrating because they they say these things about Catholicism and that they're just not true and and I think it's it's based off of a misunderstanding of of what Catholics believe and a lot of times it is rooted in this idea that Catholics paganized Christianity right you know there was this sort of pure form of Christianity that existed maybe among the apostles, but then as soon as it got power under Constantine, it quickly devolved into, you know, hero worship, and then you, like, maybe like a cult of Mithra. Yeah, you've heard that one before, you know, the, the, the bread, yeah, the bread in the wine. <clears throat> you know, something that was interesting I read once was oftentimes people like to emphasize how Christianity took from pagan cultures around them or pagan practices, which is undeniably true, and it's not a problem. Pope Benedict has a good quote about it. I think an introduction to Christianity. He talks about these as uh, as trophies. You know, Christianity <laughs> wears the pagan you know uh, culture as, as a trophy in a sense, but but we we often don't think about the idea that Christianity had an impact on pagan culture. So that there are late-stage pagan uh, cults that began to adopt Catholic practices. Oh, man. There's so many. So, <laughs> Oh, my. That's really good. You know, I've, I've actually never heard anybody 
bring this point up and I think you should do a whole video precisely on that <laughs> because, okay, I, I have to intersect real quick. Um, no, no. Things go. that I want to point out to that. Number one is because I have my Instagram, I have this group of young men that always forward me videos of <laughs> anti-Catholics making whatever videos they make and they want me to respond to them, right? React to them. So one of them was this Protestant talking about how about Christmas, and I'm sure you've heard all of the things that huh. are said about yeah. Christmas, right? <laughs> so yeah. a lot of Christians will, some of them reject Christmas altogether now, right? Because they believe that it's Christmas is actually pagan. And I actually yes. believed it for a while too in Messianic Judaism. But a lot of Christians are starting to push away because they're believing these things. And then there's the other group of Christians that will say, yeah, it did come from pagan roots, but we're taking it for Christ. You know, uh, so then they still embrace it. And this guy in this video was one of those where he was saying, yeah, you know, it comes from this uh, worship of Mithra, like you were saying, and Saturnalia mm -hmm. and all of these things. And I'm looking through it and I'm thinking, stop pushing the lies. So I went in and I commented and I brought him some history to show that Christians were celebrating the birth of Christ on the 25th of December prior to any mention of any pagan celebrating Saturnalia on the 25th. And as a matter of fact, Saturnalia was actually a season. It wasn't a day. And it actually started right. on the 22nd of December. Uh, so the dates were wrong. It was a season, not a day. It was celebrated after. And when uh, Solus Invictus, that other holiday that happens around the same time, right. when that Solus Invictus was put on the 25th, was done by a Christian apostate. So he had left the church and he wanted to take that, um, the what is it, Solus Invictus, the in, uh, Invincible Son. He right. wanted to take that holiday to replace Christmas. So it's like you're saying, they got influenced by us, not the other way around. Was, was that um, Julian the Apostate or somebody else? Yes. Yeah, it, it was, uh, uh, his name is, it's Julian, but it's something else. It's like Julia something. I have it written somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I... I that's just the 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 one who I I know from my studies, uh, Julian the Apostate. He tried to revamp, uh, kind of the the pagan system in Rome. He was a he was an emperor, and he tried to revamp the the pagan system to mimic that of the Christian because the Christian system was starting to become very popular because Christians were showing great charity. They were, and people were attracted to this idea that. There were these groups of people that were being mauled to death in, in theaters, and yet holding to the faith, and they showed wonderful charity to the, the the lowest of the low in Roman society, and that was attractive. So he tried to adopt that, and that's a point again that's not often appreciated. Is you know pagans pagans copied us too, just you know. So, well, same thing uh, that you see in like in the Caribbean. A lot of people that uh, take, for example, voodoo. And they use things that come from Christianity and they try to ruin it. Or have you ever heard of Santeria? Yes. Yes. It's another one that tries to take things from Catholicism and twist it. Um, there's just a lot of it. Even Halloween. Halloween. It's ours. Mm -hmm. But You're right. the world has tried to steal it. Like we, we have so much impact here in Japan. I'll give you another example. I live in Japan. They celebrate Christmas. They celebrate Easter. They celebrate Halloween. They have no idea about the roots. 
Interesting. But they've taken these things and they actually have been celebrating them. Only one time in my life, I remember, uh, this is when I used to work in the public school system here in Japan. There was one time that they had like an assembly and it was before Christmas and they actually spoke about the real history about Christmas, how it was about the birth of Christ. I was right. so impressed. I'm like, wow, they're actually talking about Jesus in Japan in this public school. It was really awesome. Uh, but for the majority of people, they have no idea about these roots. But yeah. again, it's it's people taking Catholicism and using it for whatever they want because Catholicism is just awesome and we make the best things. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I don't think people in the West quite understand how how much Catholicism built the whole culture that they enjoy. For sure. You know, even even someplace like America, which is more uh, Protestant, yeah, in, you know, in our roots, um, I, I wouldn't say, you know, explicitly Catholic, but even Protestantism owes its roots to Catholicism. So any sort of, I mean, we, we did a podcast episode on the, the 4th of July and the Declaration of Independence. That's all philosophical. That, that's, that's Catholic belief wrapped in philosophical language. You know, this idea of universal, this idea of universal human rights and the innate dignity of man and that man has rights that flow from the fact that he exists and such. Uh, that's not, that's not pure philosophy. You don't find that in nature. Yeah. That's a, that's a Catholic. That's a Catholic idea. Very Catholic. You know, the Catholics came up with that. Um, There's actually a whole section in the Catechism about that, and it's amazing. Oh, you know, you were speaking about authority. One one big thing for me in my coming back to the faith was was the Catechism because it was I I had no idea that we had this thing that was like, hey, if you have a question, here you go. Here's the it's it's all it's, right here. It's so good. It it never ceases to amaze me how. How how deep it is too. I think it. I think the catechism is very accessible, but at times it, there's a, an incredible depth to it as well. It's it's not, uh, you know, kind of one liners here and there. It 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 can really go deep. Um, I yeah, I love the catechism. But sorry, you there was a second point you said you wanted to, to make about oh, um, this idea. No, of, it, regarding yeah. the the whole holidays thing, it was just uh, yeah. the two examples that I was going to give. One oh, okay, was sure. the Christmas one, and then there's the other one that comes from like the Caribbean with like. Buru and Santeria and all of these things. Um, those are just the examples that I wanted to give because in in the world, you know, there there's so many things that people don't realize that come from Catholicism. But of course they taint it, which is interesting. And it also proves the fact that a lot of people, whatever they don't like about Catholicism is because they just don't know what Catholicism is. And we even started talking about that because of uh, Instagram, right? And this is what we do on social media. And often uh, I will get comments that are just so silly to me that people say them. But then I have to also remember that I used to believe some of these same things. But it makes <laughs> sure. me think like like you could just do a Google search. Of course, Google, it, you'll find all kinds of junk yeah. in there too. But sure. this is why I always refer people to Catholic.com instead of Google. <laughs> that Good, yeah. Yeah, at least there you can ask some questions and get uh, biblical, historical, uh, early Christian writings, and and all of the things that you're gonna need to be able to fully answer a question. But when whenever I'm in a comment section and people think you know that we're worshiping Mary and things like that, I'm like, do you even know what worship is? 
I realized that they just really don't. So uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, I think it was yesterday or the day before, I made a video exactly about what that is. Did you get to watch it by any chance? I don't know if you've seen this video. I just literally. I I, I actually watched a few minutes of it um, yesterday. And I, I, I watched a, another one, uh, the one you posted before that, I think on Sacramentals. I think you mentioned a point that we actually made. We uh, we talked about the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross. And so you have the bronze serpent in that and um, how that's almost uh, Old Testament sacramental theology. Because uh, the Book of Wisdom expands upon that event and says that the bronze serpent was a sign of salvation and that God worked through the serpent to... to the sacramentals to, existed, you know. yeah. Yeah. In, you know, yeah no, in a way, right? Right. So like the sure. mezuzah would be one of them, the tzitziot would be one. Um, we didn't have holy water per se, right? Except for in the actual temple, they had water that was blessed. Uh, but there are so many things that you see in Catholicism that have their roots in the scriptures and in ancient temple time Judaism. That That's one of the things that I, I just love about the faith. But when I look at people online, when they're commenting things like that, and I ask myself, do you even know what worship is? So that's why I often respond to people when they say, oh, you're worshiping an idol. And I'll just say, okay, do you know what an idol is? Do you know what worship is? And then, of course, a lot of times they don't respond, but some people do. And that's when you can actually introduce them to what real worship is. And where can you find real worship except for in the most holy Eucharist? Right, That is the true, the ultimate form of worship when we partake of Yeshua's sacrifice. We learned that sacrifice is worship, and that's why we do what we do as Catholics. So, And of course, I, I think that you already read uh, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, correct? Yes. So then you'll, you'll already know this, that that book is, should be an essential for Catholics to understand the, the Eucharist. Um, but I think as, as I was reading that book, because I was just rereading it this week, I think it's such a good book that even Jews that are not Christian should read it. Catholics should read it. Protestants should read it. And when you see that, I think you'll be drawn to Catholicism further still if you ever had been. So I, Some of the things that came out for me from that book uh, were almost that the main book is obvious, the main point of the book is about the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, obviously. But there were some almost indirect references though that answer a lot of other questions about Catholicism, and I think one of them is this whole sacramental system, and it really shows that again the the accusation is that Catholics like, paganized the sac the sacramental system and they they stole incense from pagan temples and altars from pagan temples and. They, you know, offer these sacrifices because that's what pagans did. But when you look at the uh, Jewish roots, actually what you find is there was always this material, visible sign as a symbol of something else, pointing to something else. There was always something physical that was communicating something spiritual. And I think um, I had a, uh, I believe it was my Catholic social doctrine. I had a teacher. He said, the church comments on human nature so so much because the church is an expert on human nature. And I think sometimes what Protestantism gets wrong is it, it doesn't understand human nature fully. It in man needs the visible. He needs the the physical, right? 
he you know he needs the the right he needs the water he needs the wine the oils the this the smells and the bells right to to elevate his mind because we aren't angels right like we don't just experience god directly we need something to help us and that's that's just that's just human that's just human nature and then obviously the the signs for catholics aren't just signs you know the eucharist isn't just a sign and and baptism and such but we need we need those things because we are embodied souls we 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 experience the spiritual through the physical, and I I don't think, you know, to your point about the comments, I don't know if they, they under sometimes people in the comments understand that about human nature. But uh, although I gotta say, sometimes I get pushed too much online just because of being online too much. So uh, I feel like sometimes I gotta hit confession right after being in the comment section. Because... <laughs> I, this happened literally not too long ago where somebody posted something and I said, did you get Catholicism or did you learn about Catholicism from the back of a cereal box? Because that's, <laughs> that's how silly these questions are that I'm like, where did, where did you get your knowledge of Catholicism from? Right. So, and of course you also get, you know, the, the folks that say, well, I went to a Catholic school and immediately, in my mind, I'm like, okay, here we go. Somebody that knows nothing about it. Right, right. Which is so sad. It's so sad that that's a reality. Um, but this happens a lot, right? A lot of people that went to Catholic school and actually know less about the faith than if they went to public school or something like that. I Before we started this podcast, I, I almost started another one with a, another friend. And we were going to entitle it as someone who went to Catholic school. And it was going to be going through all the like you like you said all these fallacies and heresies of you know as someone who went to catholic school i believe and it's usually just flat out false you know i i i, I you know i taught at a at a catholic high school and it was it was a good it was a good school and i taught theology there so i hope what i was doing was was good but <laughs> but i looked around and i said yeah no uh it it doesn't necessarily mean anything, you know. I I went to a Catholic high school as well, and I think back in my time, I was like, yeah, that 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 doesn't mean anything. I I live in I live in the South, uh, so every now and then, if I'm on the highway, I stop and get gas, use the restroom. I will find uh, chick tracks. Do you do you know about these? No. Um, they're, oh, well, gosh, what was his name? I'm, I'm, blanking on his, his first name, but his last name was, was Chick. And he wrote these little pamphlets and they're cartoons. And they're they're not always anti-Catholic, but but a lot of times they, they have a very, very strong anti-Catholic uh, feel to them. He's actually the one that I think coined the the hocus pocus thing. It's Whoa, and it's yes, 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 yes. The death cookie is Yeah, something about like how he, the devil convinced or yeah, something where it was like the Pope and the devil talking, like how can we convince Catholics to like give us their money or something like that? Yes, just make them worship this bread. Oh, they'll never worship bread. Something like that. Yes, yes, right, e- exactly. You they, seen one of those? Yeah, yeah. There, if you if you Google it after this, you, you'll see a bunch of them. But um, yeah, he was very very against different games, and he believed that yeah, the devil influenced you through that. I think he tried to tie some roots of Catholicism in uh, kind of ancient Egyptian pagan practices. But yeah, the death cookie and the hocus pocus, uh, which comes from uh, the, the Latin hocus, anum corpus, that this is my body. 
I, so I, I'll see some of those, and I and I do think that actually, you know, people pick them up, they read them, and you know, they they're influenced by that. I pick them up so that I can get them out of circulation. But. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. You're doing a service. Right. I. Right. I. It's like uh, you know, pick you know littering. You know, you kind of got to do your part to to clean that clean things up. So I, I'm I'm trying to trying to do my part. <laughs> That's excellent. Very nice. That's well, good, man. Um, oh. I, if I could get your some uh, some thoughts on uh, the Messiah uh, before um, before we we close up, I, I know for for I guess lack of a better word, Gentiles, it, it seems as though the question of the Messiah isn't as central, right? I. I think at least maybe I'm projecting here, but for myself, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But when I when I think about his titles and his roles, sometimes it's it's not the primary one of the one I would think of. Yeah. But I feel like for for Jews, that is the question: Is Christ the Messiah, or is is Jesus the Messiah? Because if he is, then you minimally have to be a Messianic Jew, I would think, or 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 something like that. It's yeah, I just want to get your thoughts on kind of that, that centrality of the Messiah. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know what? I think we should do a, a, a video in the future on just that topic because I think that's <laughs> super, super crucial. Yeah. But yes, there is a humongous difference between how um, a Jew versus a Gentile would right. look at, at, the, at the Messiah. And that is because for us, that is who we were promised, right? All the way since the time of Abraham, all the way, actually, since the time of Genesis, right? When he talks about in the what's called the proto-gospel. Yes. Right. So yeah, we can see that all the way from the beginning, there was a promise. And we keep seeing it through the prophets. And they speak about even Moshe himself, Moses, talked about uh, a prophet that will be like him in a certain way. But it doesn't say too much there. It keeps expanding as you get to the, the prophets. And they talk about this servant of the Lord, who is actually somehow also the Lord, who is called um, the Prince of Peace, who is called the Almighty God. So when you start taking all of these things together, the picture of the Messiah starts becoming a little bit more solid. Primarily, however, what Jews expected and still expect in many senses, if you're not a believing Jew, is a king. Because a Messiah, which comes from the word Mashiach, Mashiach means an anointed one. So to be anointed means that you are getting some type of authority. So whether you're a king or a priest, you would be anointed. Um, but they were expecting a, a somebody that was going to help them be removed from the oppressions that they were facing, that they were going to be uh, reestablished in a kingdom um, a lot of people then started adding other things, like, for example, that he was going to rebuild the temple. This is what you see now, right? Right. Uh, but, of course, during the time of the temple, they didn't think that because the temple was already there. So this is why it's really interesting. Uh, I think the core of the Messiah is just a a king that's going to rule rule righteous, righteously, somebody who's going to bring peace, somebody who's going to reestablish the kingdom of God. Uh, and they look for that because after King Solomon, the kingdom really divided, right? Right. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So we wanted that unification of the tribes. We wanted the unification of the kingdom. So primary is king, 
<clears throat> king. After that come the secondary things like somebody that's going to bring peace, somebody who's going to perform signs. And now Jews believe, this is modern Jews, believe that he's going to also bring the temple. Now, taking all of these things into account, you would see, understand why is it why it is that for a lot of Jews, they don't accept Jesus because they don't see the king how they expected the king to be. Because they were seeking right. simply for an earthly king. They didn't see the kingdom of God as something as high as what Jesus showed us, that the kingdom of God is a kingdom not on the land, but a kingdom in our hearts, which is far greater and of more importance. I think for, for Jews to really learn to accept Jesus, uh, depending on what kind of Judaism they're living in, I think the primary thing for them to see is how this Jewish man, because, you know, Jesus is a first century Jew, how he transformed history. There is no Jew more famous than Jesus, more famous than Jesus. <laughs> there is no Jew who changed the calendar like Jesus did. There is no Jew that brought the teachings that he teaches in such a radical way. There is no Jew that came and established a high court like he did and established something that has stood the test of time for millennia, right? Only with Christ. But I think for me, one of the things that I do to show Jews that, you know, we need Jesus is also showing the importance of the temple, the sacrifice, and the high, the high priest. And I actually made a video about this because Jews make it a big deal to say that we live by the Torah. The problem is that you can't and you don't because after the temple dis was destroyed, there was no more temple Judaism. There was no high court, like I explained to you. So the same issues that I had as a Protestant is what the Orthodox Jews have now. Literally the same. You go from community to community, they have different definitions of what is what. Uh, they don't know what commandments to keep because one says this, the other one says that. So if you bring the importance of the temple the sacrifice and the high priest and bring him back to that time, I think that you can really begin to explain uh, why Jesus really was the Messiah. Then you can talk about things, how he established the priesthood through the apostles, how he continued the sacrificial system in himself, how he became the sacrifice that we needed. Um, so yeah, the, the, the expectation is different, but yes. once they start seeing all of these things, they can see that Jesus really is the king, that he is the temple, he is the sacrifice, he is the high priest. Um, but it takes it takes a lot of work <laughs> to try to explain <laughs> that to a stubborn Jews. So <laughs> sure. I speak from experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, St. Paul, as the name that you wanted to take, you know, he, he was stubborn for a while. And then as, you know, perhaps he... He didn't voice it explicitly, but said, Lord, change my heart. Um, and the Lord did on the road to, to, to Damascus. Uh, just on that point as well, I, I think that, that's a good witness from you. Is I've heard it before. A lot of people, when they start on the road to Catholicism, they reach a certain point where they say, okay, if you want me to do this, Lord, if you want me to do this, you, you, have, to, you have to act. You got to give me a grace here. Um, and as far as I know, he's always, he's always given it. Yeah. But I, I, I look back on 
my journey back to faith and the figure of the Messiah, Christ is, or Jesus is the Messiah, was something that kind of came later. And it, because I think you're right, I didn't have this kind of notion of expectation or somebody was going to come, a king was going to come, there was going to be a kingdom, there was going to be a rule, there was going, there was going to be a reestablishment of land. I, I didn't have that same uh, notion. I didn't have those same notions. For me, it was I needed to see the kind of credibility and truth of Christ. It, you know, is Christ who he says he is, or right. is it myth, as a lot of people say? But it, now looking back, though, or, or studying the Old Testament— it lends credibility, though, to that he, he that he is the Messiah, and that he also is who he says he is. Oh yeah, because of these patterns that you you mention, I think it's definitely worthwhile. I I was just curious to see your perspective on it, as because you probably had more of this expectation. Yeah, and and it helps so in so many ways. I think for for a lot of Catholics who maybe are being being confronted by Protestants, for example, about a lot of Catholic theology, this is where. Catholics learning about the Hebrew roots of the faith, where I think it's super crucial. Because when you do, you can solidify Catholic teaching. For example, why do we call Mary the queen? Well, if you don't know about the Gebira, the queen mother, then you really have no defense. If you don't see that because Jesus is called the, the king, right? This is what the gospel tells us, that he was going to sit in the throne of David. This is what Jesus expected, right? You have the expectation Archangel Gabriel says he is the one that's going to sit in the throne of David. The prophet said that the Messiah, this king, was going to uh, reestablish the tent of David, which means the kingdom. Again, you go to Gabriel and he's saying that again. He's going to raise the kingdom. So what does this mean? It means that if Jesus is king, because we understand the Gebira and because we understand that the ancient kingdom structure, then we can understand that she is the queen, right? The queen is the mother. Mm-hmm. Because of the kingdom structure, because again, Jews are waiting for a king. If we're waiting for the kingdom to be reestablished, we also expect the kingdom structure. So the kingdom structure means that you're going to have Elhabait, Elhabait, which is the one that looks over the house. Who is that? The steward. That's the papacy. How do you know about this? Because if you go to the book of Isaiah chapter 22, you're going to see the story of Eliakim and Shevna, how God right. shows us that that role is a, and it's an office, right? So there's going to be succession. You can learn that uh, there is a priestly and royal aspect to this character. You learn that this person is literally called Papa. He's called Av, <laughs> the Pope, literally called mm-hmm. Av, Pope. Um, he is a royal priest. Yeah, royal priest. He is dressed in the vestments of the priest. He has all of this authority. He is giving the keys of the kingdom, literally what Yeshua tells to Kepha, to Peter later on. So I think it's super important. I think if a Catholic is equipped with the Jewish roots of the faith, they're going to be unstoppable. So I think it's super crucial for Catholics to really understand these things because then when the Protestants or when anybody else comes and says, oh, you Catholics are making that up from nowhere. You're just going at, uh, coming up with things as you go. You can say, actually, you're completely wrong. Let's look at the history and see what it says. So right. even in the video that I just made about what idolatry is and what worship is, to explain why Catholics do what they do, 
I just have to take him back in history to show what the real pattern is and say, we didn't make it up. God did. Yeah, I, I think that's that, that's a great point, uh, encouraging Catholics to go to the Old Testament, because there is a lot of what we do now that's rooted there. And I think sometimes the Old Testament is is daunting because it's it's very foreign, I think, to to Catholics. It's it's filled with many different genres. It feels mythical, and I, I mean mythical in the, the derogatory sense of not true, because um, I think there is a sense in which it's mythical insofar as it, it it's a story that's beyond like it's a, it's a fan, beyond true, yeah, supernatural. Um, I don't, I don't know if you listen to any Jordan Peterson or anything like that, but he's he's big he's big on that understanding of myth is not something that's untrue, but something that's a pattern for your life. But yeah, encouraging Catholics to go back because you're right, it's it's akin to the, the Theotokos insofar as, well, you know, if, if Jesus is God and Mary's the mother of Jesus, then Mary is the mother of God. It kind of, here it is, kind of like a syllogism. But if you don't know that about the Old Testament roots of, of her motherhood or of mothers of, of the kings, it's it's hard to make that same defense. But it actually is a very easy defense uh, in, in the same way as that she's the mother of God, but you have to know those roots. And I, and I just don't, I, I don't think we do. And it's, it's a shame because like I said, I think people are, are afraid of the old Testament. The new Testament are very, very comfortable, very friendly, but the, there's so much, when I, when I was studying the old Testament, it was, it was mind blowing how much of what we do now as Catholics started in the old Testament. Yeah. So I reinforce what you're saying. Sacramentals, all of that. Yeah, I, I took a letter to the Hebrews class, and I think at least a quarter, if not half, the semester was just going over the Levitical uh, Levit- Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Like we didn't even touch the letter. It was like in order to understand the letter, you have to understand the Old Testament, <laughs> you know. And yep. And I think that's still true with uh, much of the New Testament. If you want to understand these these deeper nuances. Um, just the other week, we had the reading uh, with giving the keys to the giving the keys to Peter, and that's like you got to understand the the Old Testament on that because it, it adds such a deep level. I mean, of course, you you know you can just tell people, well, you know, he's giving the keys to the kingdom. That means he's the Pope, but it, it's so much deeper about this. Like you said, this hierarchical system of king, the mother of the king, the queen, and then you have the intermediary between the two who acts on behalf of the king it's it's all there and it's it's man yeah you're right you, you could do many podcasts on this stuff <laughs> yeah i think we just opened a gate for like 30 different topics <laughs> yeah but it's just so good i think so that's my mission i think uh if there was anything that i would say to kind of wrap up my story is that i i see myself as obviously just a tool right but we all should see ourselves in that way. Like you mentioned earlier, our testimonies are ways to proclaim the gospel in a more personalized way. And I think that when we're able to let the Lord use us with our own stories, we can reach people in an easier way, in a more personal way that's more impactful. Like, for mm-hmm. example, if I went to speak to... um or let's say, for example, you went into the middle of a synagogue and started talking to a Jew. Maybe it might be a little bit difficult. Maybe not. Maybe, you know, by the grace of God, it would be easier. But when you can relate to somebody, it's easier. So mm-hmm. same thing for a mother. I can speak to a mother about, you know, 
the protection of life or to a young woman to, about the protection of life. And she might not care about what I have to say. But if she listens to another woman who has been through whatever she's going through, the chances are she's going to have a, a heart that is more willing to listen. So I think in the end of all of this, I would say, let the Lord use you where you're at. Let him use your testimony to preach the gospel and keep learning. And then on top of that, of course, just for every Catholic out there, just learn the Hebrew roots of the faith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get an in introduction to Hebrew and le learn the language itself if you can even. Um, but you know, I think that's a, that's a great way to, to, to close this, to just let yourself be an instrument of, of the Lord and let him, uh, let him use you to spread his, his gospel. So, absolutely. well, thank you. Thank you so much again for coming on. Um, is there any, any socials you want to plug or do you, do you have merch? I don't know. <laughs> No, I got no merch. Uh, but all I have is YouTube and Instagram. So uh, make sure that you can follow me. My my channel on both of them is The Jewish Catholic. So you can find me. You just type that on YouTube or type that on Instagram. The Jewish Catholic. And I'll be there. Uh, all of the content that I post is primarily about the Jewish roots of the faith. But of course, I talk about other things. I talk about Catholic manhood. I talk about aesthetics because I think that's also a really important part of the faith. Yeah, that's something I never. Yeah, I that was another topic I never got to. But was that um, you? You have a really good touch with that, and sometimes it's hard to blend those two. It can sometimes Catholic art can be gaudy or you know kind of a cheap piety. But you have a, you have a very good eye. But anyway, sorry. Thank you. But yeah, so uh, check out the channels. If you're interested, let me know uh, if you like it. And of course, subscribe if you can. Yeah, please go check him out. Great content. Highly recommend. But once again, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your, your story and, and some other topics. Um, hopefully we'll do it again sometime soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. <laughs>